Okay, so today um, we are going to cover the expansion of the Reformation in Europe and the rise of pietism. And the picture that you see on the screen is a picture of Count Zinzendorf, who was a leading Bohemian or German, Eastern German uh, nobleman um, who lived in the 1600s. And he had had a spiritual awakening. So much of what we're going to cover today focuses on groups that were concerned with something that went beyond just outward religiosity, attending church services, saying that you believed all the orthodox teachings. It went to the heart. And this is something that especially the German pietists and German Christians, many of them, focused on what is the condition of, the, of your human heart. <clears throat> so in this, by the 1600s, Luther's teachings had become the dominant form of Protestant Christianity in Northern Europe, not only in Germany, but throughout Scandinavia. And if you're a little rusty on your world geography, Scandinavia is comprised of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, and some people would kind of throw in the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, so these are kind of, you know, this is the, the top of Northern Europe. In the later Middle Ages, the cultural ties between these two regions, between Germany on the main continent and the Scandinavian nations, were linked by trade and similarities in language, and these ties were strong. Scandinavia was sparsely populated and had only a few universities. Many Scandinavian scholars regularly enrolled in German universities and thus became familiar with the Reformation teachings in the early 16th century. When they returned to their homelands, they brought with them knowledge of Luther's ideas and encouraged the monarchs of Sweden and Denmark to adopt evangelical reforms. So what began to happen in, in the Scandinavian countries, you had the, at, at first it was the prevailing Roman Catholic Church, but then when Lutheranism, Protestant ideas came along, they were referred to, commonly referred to as evangelical. And even to this day, if you meet someone from one of those countries who is a Christian, they will often use the term evangelical in describing themselves and what they believe. In 1527, the Swedish parliament voted to break its ties with Rome, and a council held two years later prepared the way for a reform of Sweden's church. In Denmark, the pattern was similar, although the adoption of Lutheranism occurred slightly later. At first, a national parliament meeting at Odens granted recognition to Lutherans while protecting the rights of Catholics. And, you know, it's a little bit more heartening to study uh, the development of the Reformation in Scandinavia because there really wasn't the violent political clashes between Ro uh, Roman Catholics and Lutherans uh, the way there was in, in a lot of other countries. Denmark's monarch, though, favored Lutheranism, as did the nobility, who, who stood to benefit from the crown's abolition of Catholic monasteries 
and the sale of their lands. So once again, just as we saw with Henry VIII in England, if the king decided to cut ties with Rome, that meant all of the wealth and property of the Catholic establishments, the churches, the monasteries, the convents, all of the land that they owned, and they owned a lot, all of that became the property of the king. So again, we can see where Protestantism definitely benefited uh, the king as opposed to remaining Roman Catholic. The other, you know, da uh, drawback to remaining Roman Catholic was if you were a king or a prince, uh, you were still subject to the Pope and he could essentially tell you what to do. So there were certainly not just religious reasons for breaking from Rome, there were political and economic reasons as well. After a brief civil war, Protestantism triumphed in Denmark in 1536. The king called one of Luther's close associates, Johann Bugenhagen, to Denmark to advise him on how to institute Luther's reforms. These new evangelical Lutheran churches adopted essentially conservative reforms. And much of the liturgy in these churches remained very similar to the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, they simply got rid of, you know, they cut ties with the Pope, they cut ties with Rome, they got rid of statues, icons, and other religious paraphernalia. And so the Lutheran churches throughout Scandinavia became very plain. By 1539, the Danish church had become a national church with the king as the head and, and the clergy as leaders in matters of faith, much like the Church of England. Norway followed Denmark, establishing the Church of Norway as an evangelical Lutheran Protestant national church. The Swedish, Swedish Diet of Vasteras, 1527, officially declared what had for some time been true, namely that Sweden was an evangelical state. The outstanding Swedish reformers were the brothers Olas and Laurentius Petri. Finland, under Swedish rule, followed suit. Olas Petri, or Olaf Peterson, born in 1493 in Sweden, studied at Wittenberg, Germany from 1516 to 1518. He was influenced by Luther and Philip Melanchthon. He was initially a favorite of the Swedish king Gustavus Vasa. Due to prevailing hostility between the king and the Roman Catholic Church and the influence of Petri, the king was persuaded to become Lutheran. Petri provided most of the literature for the Swedish Reformation movement, including a Swedish New Testament, hymn book, church manual, the Swedish liturgy, and many homiletical and poetic polemical writings, or in other words, works of theology in Swedish. And so here you have on the screen um, some pictures I was able to find uh, Olas and his brother Laurentius. Um, and these were influential Swedes. And, and eventually we will get to talking about Charles and John Wesley, so the founders of Methodism and uh, the holiness movement in England. And of course they come later, but these brothers were essentially like Charles and John Wesley. They were intent on reforming uh, you know, Christian worship and practice in their native countries.
Laurentius Petri, or Lars Peterson, brother of Olas Petri, was born in 1499 and was active in the Luther Lutheran Reformation in Sweden along with his brother. He became the first Protestant Archbishop of Uppsala from 1531 to 1573. The Swedish Bible of 1541, for which he was principally responsible, was as important for Swedish life and literature as Luther's German translation was for the German-speaking peoples. Laurentius also wrote the Swedish church's Kirkordning, and I'm not saying that correctly, I know, <laughs> the order and practice of the church, but this is similar to the German word, you know, for example, the Anabaptists talk about their Ordnung, which is their order and practice for their church. So just as Luther essentially modernized and in a sense revolutionized German uh, culture by writing his Bible, so these two men, these Swedes, uh, essentially brought, they, they brought not only Protestant theology into Sweden, but they affected the culture very much by all of their writings and their work. So let's take a look for a moment at the Reformation in Eastern Europe. Poland, though remaining predominantly Roman Catholic, acquired a large Protestant minority in the late 16th century. And again, you have waves of persecution that are sweeping various groups that are not part of national churches uh, to and fro throughout Europe. People who are not part of the established religious hierarchies and churches uh, oftentimes are exiled or they flee persecution because otherwise they'd be put to death. And a lot of Protestants not only moved west, but they moved east as well. The city of Danzig within that area and its German Lutheran population came under Polish control. And if you know anything about the history of Poland, Poland was a, a country sandwiched, is a country sandwiched in between Russia and Germany. And changes of kings and uh, political changes and then later world wars have greatly affected the boundaries and the population within Poland. And so Poland has been subject to waves of emigration from both East and West, both Germans and Russians and uh, other peoples as well. Uh, during this uh, time, Poland r was ruled by a king. Um, and again, they never officially left the Roman Catholic Church, but there were a lot of Protestants in Poland. A large contingent of the Bohemian Brethren migrated to Poland after the Habsburg ruler. When you think Habsburg, think Holy Roman Empire, Roman Catholic, Austria, Hungary, etc. Uh, attempted their extermination. So, and uh, much of the region these people settled in, you know, you normally wouldn't think of this uh, to be the case, but much of this region is now modern day Romania, as well as Poland, um, parts of Bulgaria, and Hungary. And again, you might think, you know, a lot of those regions today are either Orthodox or Catholic, but there are still to this day. Um, pockets of Protestant groups here and there. 
Several Polish nobles adopted their pacifism. The Bohemian Brethren promoted pacifism. You know, fighting a war was immoral for a Christian, and they wore only swords made of wood. In 1570, the anti-Trinitarian Socinians, named after their leader, Faustus Socinius, flocked from Italy to Poland. And this is one of the footnotes of history. Uh, Socinius was a, a heretic and persecuted by Rome. He did not believe in the Trinity. Now, these Socinians, they received asylum in Poland perhaps merely because they were Italian because the queen of Italy at that time was Bona Sforza. They flourished in Poland until dispersed by the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation and survived in small groups until the 19th century. So again, despite persecution, um, these heretics persisted for quite a while. Socinianism held that Christ was fully human and not divine, although sinless. Christ's sufferings teach humans how to bear their own sufferings. For Socinians, eternal life is attained through the study of divinely revealed scripture. Faith is more than the belief that the teaching of Christ is true. It also results in repentance for sins and in an obedience that leads to eternal life. Socinian beliefs later found expression in Unitarian theology beginning in the 17th century up to today. Uh, now, in the Dayton area, there are not a lot of Unitarians. Have, has anyone ever heard of the Unitarian Church? They're, yeah. Um, and, you know, later on, we will talk about the Unitarians, where they came from, and what they believe. Much more extensive was the Calvinist influx, not only into Poland, but into the whole of Eastern Europe. This variety of Protestantism appealed to those of non-German stock because it simply was not German and no longer markedly French, as well as because of its revolutionary temper and Republican sentiments. You know, so for a period of time, people thought, well, if I become Lutheran, I, I, I'm aligning myself with, you know, Germany and Germans, and maybe I'm not German, maybe I'm you know, from a Slavic people, maybe I'm Romanian. Uh, and I, I like the ideas that I hear in, in these Protestant churches, but I don't wanna have to, you know, abandon my ethnic identity. But as time went on, Lutheran, Cal, uh, Calvinist ideas, uh, the ideas that were coming from uh, a lot of the Swiss Christians, people began to see that these aren't just ideas confined to one ethnic or national group. They're really universal. The Compact of Warsaw, 1573, called the Pax Desiderium, Desidentium, sorry, the peace of those who differ, granted tolerations to Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Bohemian brethren, but not to the Socinians. So as long as you were a Trinitarian Christian, you could experience in Poland at this point in history something that really closely approximated what we have today, religious freedom. In Hungary, the Turkish victory at the Battle of Mohawks in 1526 brought about a division of the land into three sections. 
Some parts of Hungary were Roman Catholic, some were Protestant, both Lutheran and Calvinist, and the Turkish con controlled area was officially Muslim. So by this point, the Muslims had penetrated into Eastern Europe and much of what today is, you know, Croatia, Slovenia, Yugoslavia, parts of Hungary and so forth, uh, were officially controlled by the Ottoman Turks and the official religion was Muslim, although they allowed Christians to continue living there and being Christian. Although Roman Catholicism would predominate among the Hungarian population, Calvinism made gains and the anti-Trinitarians found a permanent home in Transylvania, a portion of what today is Romania. The weakness of government and the diversity of religion made for a large degree of toleration. And now we need to touch for a little bit on the Thirty Years' War and its aftermath. Math. The Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 was the background for the intensification of a desire for spiritual renewal. So think about what we talked about with regard to England during this time. England is undergoing a big split between the Church of England and the Puritans, culminating in a civil war. Well, in, within France, Germany, and Eastern Europe, there's a war going on, um, and it, a lot of it is due to religious differences. German principalities, Poland, Western Russia, Denmark, Sweden, Austria, Holland, and Spain were involved. And I left out France in that list. They were involved, but that's a whole, a whole semester in itself to study. <laughs> but they were involved. Distress in Central Europe was widespread and profound. In some places, the economy was reduced to barter. Schools were closed. Churches were burned. The sick and the needy were forgotten. Spiritual and moral deterioration accompanied the physical destruction. Religious differences involving Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and other Protestant groups played a major role in the Thirty Years' War. However, during the war, notable signs of renewal appeared. Interest in earlier devotional literature developed, which reflected the pious mysticism of Toller, Akempis, Schwenkfeld, Wiegel, and Bohm. And uh, you can see the dates for these people and you know, if you ever have some time to kill, look them up on the internet. Find out what they taught, what they believed, and what they wrote. The Peace of Westphalia in 1648 was to be the end of the Thirty Years' War and the Wars of Religion. The peace treaty changed the map of Europe into what it is essentially today, but it did not end the controversies between Catholicism and Protestantism. The 17th century was at once the high era of Protestant systematic orthodoxy and the age when the first signs of its dissolution appeared. The axioms of the Reformation were worked out in a great and systematic body of doctrine. Think uh, Calvin's Institutes, Luther's writings, and so on, based on the notion that the Christian faith was best defined by its doctrines. The theologians defended and the pastors taught Luther's or Calvin's dogmatic systems. They relied also upon authoritative sources such as the formula of Concord in 1577 in Lutheranism or the conclusions of the Synod of Dort 
1618, in Calvinism, which were extended and made into a tradition. Protestant theological systems of all variety were worked out in many volumes, appealing always to reason and to biblical authority, and seldom to feeling or conscience. This period became known as the age of Protestant orthodoxy or scholasticism. So it almost appears that Christianity is in danger of becoming not really a religion to be practiced, but something that you read in a book, ideas that you assent to, uh, a philosophy of life that you agree to, but it really doesn't have much to do with how you live your life. It doesn't have much to do with you as an individual. The term Protestant scholasticism really came later when the axioms or the principles on which the systems were founded were no longer accepted. These were the last scriptural theologians before the period of the Enlightenment when the understanding of the scriptures was altered. So just a hint, there's going to become a huge revolution in the 1700s in all areas of life, in religion, philosophy, science, art, literature, and so on. And we will get to that. But the old axioms were changed by the emerging pietism, by scientific developments that began in the 1600s, and by philosophy. Now, the influences of English Puritanism were not just swirling around in England and being imported into the New World, the British colonies in North America. They were also going into the continent, in, into all, really all parts of Europe, through the translation of works by Richard Baxter, Lewis Bailey, and John Bunyan. And the name John Bunyan should be familiar to almost everyone. He is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm sure many of you have read, and they've made movies based on this work. And on the left, you see here an illustration from a, um, a book that was published in the 1700s. It's an edition of The Pilgrim's Progress. Baxter wrote a book called A Call to the Unconverted. Bailey had written The Practice of Piety. And of course, Bunyan wrote a lot more besides Pilgrim's Progress. And there were Dutch pietists. We've touched on them as well. Um, Dutch pietists were influenced by William Ames, an English Puritan. And his book, uh, books, rather, The Marrow of Sacred Theology and On Conscience were basic textbooks for federal or covenant theology. So the Puritans had developed, um, and we've referred to it here in this church, they have developed covenant theology. And this is the idea that God makes co a covenant with man and how that covenant is worked out through history. Um, this is how we understand our relationship with God. Now, even more influential was Johannes Cochius. I hope I'm saying that right, <laughs> uh, a German author. Um, his 1648 work, The Summa on the Doctrine Concerning the Covenant and Testament of God, is based on the notion that the relationship between God and humans, both before and after the fall, was a covenant. 
The covenantal concept spread among reform groups in England, Germany, Scotland, the Netherlands, and the New England colonies, where it was especially influential. Ideas from these English and Dutch leaders became a part of the reform movement that had already appeared in G German Lutheran circles and was to become known as Reform Orthodoxy. So again, here we have theologians that are, you know, continuing to forge ahead in the realms of theology and philosophy and developing these things. But there are other people usually think of the common man, the ordinary person sitting in a church pew who was concerned with other things as well. At the same time as covenant theology and other trends coming from Puritanism were spreading, pietism began to emerge in the German principalities in reaction to Lutheranism. So on the one hand, you have these cold, dead, orthodox Lutheran churches where you go and you repeat the words you, you're supposed to repeat in the service, and you agree to everything that the church is teaching you, and outwardly you live your life as a good Christian. But again, what is the condition, the true condition, of your own human heart? Johann Arndt and Johann Donhauer were leading pietist theologians at this time. The heart theology of these Orthodox Lutherans found its highest expression and widest audience in the writings of Arndt. So, on the, you know, these are not people who are advocating violent revolution. They aren't saying we need to separate from the Lutheran church. We need to purify the church or anything like that. They are simply saying, let the church take care of all these external things. We want to focus on the condition of our hearts. <clears throat> Art's uh, chief work, Four Books on True Christianity, was soon being read in countless homes. So Arndt's uh, writing and his emphasis appealed to the common people. Arndt stressed the notion of the mystical union between the believer and Jesus, a 17th century Lutheran doctrinal addition. Even more important for Arndt was repentance, regeneration, and new life which would become the essence of pietism. The various streams of concern for renewal converged in the life and work of Philip Jacob Spenner. In 1666, after earning his theological doctorate at Strasbourg, he was called to be superintendent of the clergy in Frankfurt am Main in the Principality of Hesse. Now, Spinner was very distressed by the conspicuous worldliness of the city. Again, this is a time when, you know, people attend the state church, they go through the motions, but in their daily lives, in their business practices, they just are living like any ordinary pagan. His sermons, Spinner's sermons, urged repentance and renewal, and each Sunday afternoon he held catechism classes for both children and adults. And this is very similar to what Calvin did in Switzerland a century before. Spenner's efforts led to the revitalization of the rite of confirmation, 
which since the days of Martin Bucer had been practiced in Hesse. So in other words, he was very much focused on educating the youth and making sure they were educated in the faith that they would uh, become confirmed and be able to take communion uh, as full-fledged adult members of the congregations. He was very much concerned that the Christian faith was essentially dying out because even if you have a state church, that doesn't guarantee that everybody in the kingdom is a Christian. During his studies at Strasbourg, Spener developed an interest in reforming Lutheran Orthodox practice. In particular, he objected to the rigidity of Lutheran church government and the lack of moral discipline among the clergy. <clears throat> Recall that this had been a problem for Luther, uh, looking at, at the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, how the priests behaved, um, you know, a lot of times they were drunks, they were fornicating, they were doing all kinds of things that hardly made them uh, Christian examples to the people. Um, and Spener was concerned about the same thing in Germany, and he was concerned about it within the Lutheran church. In addition to the catechism classes, he developed schools of piety. These were devotional gatherings intended to encourage personal spiritual growth prayer, and Bible study. Now, a lot of this begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it begin to sound like some of the things that some of us have encountered in our own spiritual walks living in the 20th and the 21st century in the United States of America? A concern for what is the condition of my heart? Am I really following Christ? I attend church, but maybe all I'm doing is just warming the pew. Maybe I sit in the pew on Sunday mornings, but my heart isn't there. Now, uh, Spenner, in addition to the catechism classes, had developed these schools of piety. And in 1675, he published Pia Desideria, Pious Desires, his most important book. Pia Desideria proposed six areas of reform to more thoroughly acquaint believers with scripture by means of private readings and study groups, in addition to preaching, <clears throat> to increase the involvement of the laity in all functions of the church, to emphasize that believers put into practice their faith and knowledge of God, to approach religious discussions with humility and love, avoiding controversy, whenever possible, to ensure that pa pastors are both well-educated and pious, and to focus preaching on developing faith in ordinary believers. Spenner went on to produce many other books and writings that display an emphasis on personal transformation through spiritual rebirth and renewal. It is this focus on individual devotion and piety that places him within the realm of pietism. Spenner wanted to strengthen and renew the church through the development of more knowledgeable and devoted members. However, he did not embrace or advocate the quietistic, legalistic, and semi-separatist practices of other proponents of pietism. So not all pietists were con content to stay within the state church of the country they were living in. Uh, but Spenner was very much an Orthodox Lutheran. 
The philosophical backgrounds of pietism, quietism, and separatism highlight the dilemmas faced by Christians in this part of the world at this point in history. These philosophical perspectives are not themselves confined to any particular national or denominational church or religious movement. These perspectives shape how Christians perceive their faith and how they live out their faith in this world. To be in the world and not of the world. This is a dilemma that every Christian faces in all cultures and time periods of history. We saw how the Puritan separatists came to the point that they felt they could no longer live as Christians in England and had to leave their home to find a place to live and worship as Christians. Pietism spread from Germany to Switzerland and the rest of German-speaking Europe to Scandinavia and the Baltics and all the way on through France, Italy, and so forth. Uh, so even in areas of Europe that were predominantly Roman Catholic, these ideas continued to spread. Most pietistic Lutherans stayed within the Lutheran Church, although they were often criticized by the Lutheran Church hierarchy. Many radical pietists broke off from traditional uh, denominations, just as separatist Puritans had done. Pietism, along with Lutheranism and Calvinism, was further taken to North America, primarily by German and Scandinavian immigrants. And in North America, it influenced Protestants of other ethnic backgrounds, contributing to the 18th century foundation of evangelicalism, a movement within Protestantism that ha today has some 300 million followers. Now, quietism. What is quietism? This is the name given, especially in Roman Catholic theology, to a set of Christian beliefs that rose in popularity in France, Italy, and Spain during the late 1670s and 1680s, and is particularly associated with the writings of the Spanish mystic Miguel de Molinos and the French Madame Guillaume. Quietism was condemned as heresy by Pope Innocent XI in the papal bull Celestis Pastor of 1687. The quietist heresy was seen to consist of wrongly elevating contemplation over meditation, intellectual stillness over vocal prayer, and interior passivity over pious action. So for a quietist, this almost literally means that you are going to be very quiet, <laughs> literally. Um, you are going to you are going to focus so much on the interior spirituality of your own Christian walk. Um, you are going to, uh, from from an outward perspective or from the world's perspective, you know they're going to call you a hermit or something. You're you're just going to hole up, and you're going to read the Bible and other spiritual writings, and you're going to pray, and you're going to contemplate, and you're going to seek God in your. Uh, prayer closet, and that's about all you're going to do. Quietist writings gave accounts of mystical prayer, spiritual growth, and union of God, with God. Now, let's think about this, okay? So if people are going to be quietists, if they're just going to be at home in their prayer closets, what do they need? A big church, a big expensive church hierarchy, you know, who needs that? So naturally, the Roman Catholic Church would look at this and say, uh, this is suspect. 
Catholic authorities accuse quietists of believing that there is the possibility for a believer of achieving a sinless state. And indeed, some quietists said, if you just meditate enough and you just work on it enough, you can become sinless in this life. And you can achieve union with the Trinity. Now, obviously, you can, you can also see how this, um, this movement or this trend could lead to a lot of you know, again, looking at it from the church hierarchy, it could lead to a lot of problems. It could lead to heresy. The term quietist originally came from the Spanish saints Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, who spoke of those who were devoted to the prayer of quiet. Both were very active reformers and both cautioned against a simple-minded, don't think anything, or in Spanish, no pesar nada, approach to meditation and contemplation. Okay, so St. Therese, you know, there's a tradition, and we haven't really talked about this. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll be able to at some, in some future study. But there was a strong tradition of mysticism within this, uh, especially the Spanish branch of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and this was cultivated in the monasteries and the convents. Um, and so these mystics would, um, you know, pray and seek God, and they would seek to do good works, and they would write religious writings, and they would meet with pilgrims and encourage them in their spiritual uh, lives and so forth. Um, but they were truly firmly within the Roman Catholic Church and did not advocate any heretical teachings. Um, and they basically hewed to the party line, so to speak, in terms of what the Catholic Church said. You know, essentially the Catholic Church is saying, here are the bounds of mysticism. Don't stray beyond those if you want to stay in a good place with us. So uh, Teresa and St. John of the Cross were not considered heretics. They were late, you know, after they were dead, later they became saints. They were canonized. Now, interestingly enough, uh, a British man by the name of George Fox began to approach the Christian faith in much the same way as the Spanish and French mystics were doing. George Fox came to the conclusion that the only real spirituality was achieved by paying attention to the Holy Spirit, although he was firmly Trinitarian, but you did this through silence. And George Fox is the founder of the Quaker movement. And he founded this uh, on this idea of silence, of quietism. He was born in the strongly Puritan village of Drayton in the Clay, Leicestershire, England in 1624. He was the eldest of four children of Christopher Fox, a successful weaver called Righteous Christer by his neighbors and his wife, Mary. So he was born into a thoroughly Christian family, and his father was a church warden and was relatively wealthy. When he died in the late 1650s, he left his son a substantial legacy. As he grew up, his relatives, quote, thought to have made me a priest. They mean by, he means by that a priest in the Church of England. Um, but he was instead apprenticed to a local shoe, uh, shoemaker, Sorry, I left, I have a typo in that. And a grazier or a shepherd. This suited his contemplative 
temperament, and he became well known for his diligence among the wool traders who had dealings with his master. A constant obsession for Fox was the pursuit of simplicity in life, meaning humility and the abandonment of luxury. And there's a, an engraving of George Fox. Who does he look like? The Quaker Oat, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, we, we see, the, again, styles of dress and what they mean to people in different time periods. So, you know, to us, you know, we, we think of uh, people like this, dressing like this as being Quakers. Modern Quakers today, of course, do not dress like this. Um, but this is how most uh, 16th century, or rather 17th century Englishmen dressed. They all looked like Quakers, pretty much. <laughs> um, and especially the Puritans. Uh, anyone who was involved in, in any aspect of the Puritan mo movement, most of them advocated simplicity of life, simplicity as reflected in your dress and other things about how you lived your life. Now, George Fox knew people who he called professors. These are followers of the standard religion. But by the age of 19, he had be begun to look down on their behavior, in particular drinking alcohol. He records that in prayer one night after leaving two acquaintances at a drinking session, he heard an inner voice saying, thou seest how young people go together into vanity and old people into the earth. Thou must forsake all, young and old, keep out of all and be as a stranger unto all. So George Fox listened to that inner voice. As a young man, Fox traveled around the country as his particular religious beliefs took shape. At times, he actively sought the company of Church of England clergy, but found no comfort from them as they seemed unable to help him with the matters that he was troubled by. And later he wrote, as I had forsaken the priests, so I left the separate preachers also, meaning he left the Puritans also. And those esteemed the most experienced people for I saw there was none among them all that could speak to my condition. And when all my hopes in them and in all men were gone, so that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could tell what to do, then, oh then, I heard a voice which said, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. And when I heard it, my heart did leap for joy. So essentially what Fox is uh, relating here is, you know, I think what a lot of us could call perhaps a conversion experience. He is truly coming to know the Lord. He continued, then the Lord let me see why there was none upon the earth that could speak to my condition, namely that I might give him all the glory for all are concluded under sin and shut up in unbelief as I had been that Jesus Christ might have the preeminence who enlightens and gives grace and faith and power. He thought intensely about the temptation of Christ, which he compared to his own spiritual condition. He had, however, a conviction that God would support and preserve him, and he spent a great deal of time in prayer and meditation. In 1647, Fox began to preach publicly in marketplaces, fields, appointed meetings of various kinds, or even sometimes in steeple houses. 
That was the Quaker name for churches after the service. His powerful preaching began to attract a small group of followers. It's not clear at what point the Society of Friends was formed, but there was certainly a group of people who often traveled together with Fox. And at first they called themselves Children of the Light or Friends of the Truth and later simply Friends. And the Quakers did indeed later come to be known as the Society of Friends. And I think it's kind of interesting if you met people today you know, if you met someone from a, a local group and, and you said, what's the name of your group? And they said, Children of the Light. What would you assume? A cult. A cult. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Fox's approach did not endear himself to the Church of England, nor did it endear himself to uh, mainstream Puritanism. Now, Fox seems initially to have had no desire to found a sect or a cult, but only to proclaim what he, he saw as the pure and genuine principles of Christianity in their original simplicity. However, he did show great skill as a religious organizer in the structure that he gave to the new society. Fox's preaching was grounded in scripture, but was mainly effective because of the intense personal experience he was able to project. So in other words, he was able to take scripture and put it in words that people found compelling. And obviously, they were not find, some of those people were not finding that in their local parish church or diocese. He was scathing about immorality, deceit, and the hypocrisy of the extracting of tithes and following religion and urged his listeners to lead lives without sin and lives of real faith. And of course, Fox and his followers were routinely persecuted by the religious authorities of the Church of England and the civil authorities. And like many Puritans and separatists of that period, Fox led an itinerant ministry because he had to, as much from seeking to proclaim the gospel as from seeking to escape the authorities. There was also concern that his group of followers were seeking political revolution. And again, this is all uh, with the background of the English Civil War going on. And, you know, a lot of the people are saying, are these people really Roman Catholics coming to overthrow the British king? Are they on the side of the roundheads uh, with Oliver Cromwell? Just whose side are they on? You know, what are they about? Uh, Fox had two opportunities to talk with Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, at that time. And Fox petitioned Cromwell for an end to persecution, but Cromwell was not able to guarantee that. Quaker teachings uh, spread to the North American British colonies from the Caribbean islands all the way up north to Mas Massachusetts. Fox made the voyage across the Atlantic and beginning in Barbados and traveling up the eastern seaboard of North America, he preached and encouraged groups of friends in many colonies. Quaker teachings also spread throughout Europe. Quakers advocated for pacifism, social justice, the abolition of slavery, prison and criminal justice reform, aid to the poor and the sick, education reform, and equal social status for women long before women had equal social status in any society. Quakers were advocating uh, for that. And finally, we're going to conclude with a list of famous Quakers. Um, Quakers 
the movement uh, exists today, um, and most often they call, they call themselves the Society of Friends. <clears throat> and you can find, I don't know if there are any uh, groups that meet in this area, there could be. Um, there's not a lot of them left, but you can find them pretty much all over the world now. So famous Quakers, of course, there was William Penn, an Englishman. He was the founder of the colony and later the state of Pennsylvania, in which he uh, proclaimed religious freedom for anyone who uh, entered the colony and settled there. <clears throat> Many famous scientists were Quakers. John Dalton, uh, Francis Galton, E.B. Tyler, an anthropologist, the astronomer Arthur Eddington, and the physician Joseph Lister, discoverer of antisepsis, or in other words, a, a, a Lister, have you ever heard of Listerine? We all know what Listerine is, right? That comes from Joseph Lister. He realized that doctors who did not wash their hands when going from patient to patient in a hospital were spreading germs. And he uh, was one of the very first advocates for uh, frequent hand washing, especially among nurses and doctors, um, and we're using his innovations to this day. <clears throat> uh, the suffragists, Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony, women who advocated for equal, sta equal legal status for women and who advocated in the United States of America for uh, women to have the vote. Uh, two American presidents came from Quaker families, Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon. Her Herbert Hoover was our 31st president and Richard Nixon was our 37th president. And interestingly, some actors, Judy Dench, British actor, and also British actor Ben Kingsley. And those are just some, there's many other famous people whose names you might recognize who were either raised as Quakers or who became Quakers. Um, that concludes what I have for today. Are there any questions or comments?